tuning into another episode of Reverse Ambition, a podcast that features those who took a leap of faith to follow their dreams and passions. I'm your host, Kelsey Cooper, aka The Social Broker. And today, I will be rapping with my good friend, Sheree Robinson, who is an entrepreneur, a DJ, a modern Pan-Africanist, who is a founder and CEO of Tastemakers Africa, an experienced marketplace connecting curious travelers to local insiders in African cities. Welcome, Sheree. What up, girl? Hey, how are you? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. You're in the States, right? Yes, I am in New York at the moment. Okay, cool, cool. Well, thank you very much for joining me on Reverse Ambition. I think of your journey as a perfect example of those who took a leap of faith. You probably take a multiple leaps of faith in terms of chasing your dreams and passions, and we want to go into that. So uh, take me through your journey from where did you go to school? So I went to Morgan State University in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Uh-huh. Uh, studied biology uh, and had an amazing college experience, pledged to the government president, did the whole nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, a student and, government president? Wow, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, I, so I started, I mean, that's what I studied. And I think junior year realized that I didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> oh, wow. I was um, so you're trying to do internships and be a serious person by the time you're a junior. And so I remember shadowing a physician over a summer mm-hmm. at an emergency room like so she was a f- attending physician in a in a trauma center mm-hmm. and i remember some person came in i think they were having like a drug overdose or something crazy and they had to put a trach in their skull mm-hmm. and i was like yep never doing anything like this and it's funny it didn't occur to me that like clearly i don't have to be a trauma physician but in my head i was just like I don't have the like emotional dexterity required right. to be if this actually isn't going to work. So right. then I had to figure out what I wanted to do with this biology degree. And so by that point, I had also I'd done some research at the University of Maryland. And I realized that my favorite part of doing my research was actually the part where I got to like analyze and present my work. But I hated, like, having to go to the lab every day and, like, check my Petri dishes and cell cultures. Like, I didn't like that part. Mm -hmm. So um, what I did know is that travel needed to be a part of whatever life I wanted. I mean, history was actually my favorite class. And history sort of inspired me to want to see the world and sort of escape the one I was in, at least from when I was younger. Right. And so I was like, how do I sort of merge this biology degree because i'm not about to like change my major at this point right with this sort of global ambition and so did a bunch of research and realized that international development was probably the best place for me to land so by the time i was in senior year i was actively looking at you know global humanitarian organizations uh, wanting to become an ambassador or foreign service officer and really sort of aligning myself with uh, careers that would blend my science degree and my kind of global interests. 
Right. This was your senior year. Of college, yep. Wow. Very ambitious. That's a good pivot in terms of from wanting to be a doctor all three years in college to now that I want to travel and be a global ambassador per se. You know, that's that was a yeah. were you nervous? Were you scared about, you know, when you graduate and trying to no. figure that out? I mean, no, my experience, I mean, I was, I was lucky in many respects, even when I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to travel. So like my whole purpose of being a doctor was to eventually go work for Medicine Sound Frontiers, MSF. Oh, okay. So like I, I, I already like, so even in being a doctor, like my goal was to like get enough practice under my belt so I could go work for MSF. Right. So that was always sort of how I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, I lucked out because I had an internship my senior year at AARP, interestingly enough. They had a global health division. Mm-hmm. And so global health was really my focus um, once I was like, okay, combining interests. And so I was interning at AARP in the global health division. And much of that work was actually policy stuff. So I was using sort of my science and research brain, but applying it to policy. But I also at the same time, was like learning like literal like hosting diplomacy skills at this Iranian boss who had an African American husband wow. and this like really awesome sort of direct supervisor and they were just really committed to me. Like my whole I was the youngest intern. I was the only intern in the office that wasn't in, in a master's degree program. Mm-hmm. Um and and my How old my were you? Cop- like this is like you just your senior year of course you were uh, like- yeah so I'm like 21, 22. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So 20, like 2021, something like that. Right. And so I, um, I was fortunate, like they basically like were trying to teach me everything, uh, and expose me to everything. I mean, everything from like, okay, we're hosting the German ambassador tonight, Sheree, you're ordering the wine. So in order to order the wine in this setting, you need to know these things. You need to be able to do this drink red wine at business dinners because this is at 20 (laughs) yeah 20 years old wow these people were like pouring into me that way and so when it was time for me to graduate they were like look we don't want you like struggling to find a job so they ended up offering me a full-time job like so i never went through the like graduate and where am i going to work thing i just worked at my internship so they converted me to a full-time employee and i worked there for a year after graduation. What was your position? Um, I was some made up job that they made. <laughs> they like, love you that much. Like, they created a job for yeah, you. Yeah, they basically just like create, I mean, it wasn't a job that they were like advertising. It was like, what was it? Like staff, I'm trying to remember what the title was. It was like, uh, I don't even remember, but it, was, it wasn't like an admin role. Mm-hmm. It was like, team something like I can't remember but it was like a job that they literally made up wow because they love you so much yeah wow so okay so you say you stayed here for a year Mm -hmm. how was how was that experience you know what did you in that you're not an intern anymore you were a job so what were you exposed to in terms of you know within that year I mean it was basically like my internship on steroids I met Hillary (laughs) Clinton um, which was dope. Like meeting Hillary was like a big thing. Oh, for Hillary me. Clinton. Uh huh. So okay. I met her. I mean, a lot of my work was like being support for the team, mm-hmm. writing briefs 
doing research. I mean, at the time, uh, President Bush was, uh, in his administration, was looking at Medicare Part D. Okay. Um, and so what I was doing was like getting uh, global examples of good health care policy, good health practice, well-being practice for the 50 plus population. And so I was looking at what was Denmark doing? What is Germany doing? What is Australia doing? And really sort of researching those programs and then producing research reports and papers that would back our policy positions at AARP with international sort of competencies. So a lot of my work was around that. And then, you know, a part of that work we were doing at AARP was going beyond sort of the research and actually bringing, you know, the Minister of Health from Denmark over to the U.S. to meet with policymakers. And so I also got to do a lot of, like, congressional briefings and stuff like that. So that's, I got really, really exposed to sort of how the government works, how foreign policy works, you know, how these things intersect. Um, And so that's kind of back and forth to the Hill. Um, You know, AARP positioned our internship as like a Capitol Hill internship. Mm -hmm. So we're also very much connected to the world of like Hill staffers and stuff like that. And I considered actually going and working for a congressman while I was there but I realized at the time that, like, policy wasn't necessarily, like, my deepest passion. Right. So, um, is right? <laughs> I, I mean, I got to, I mean, I was doing global work, even right. though I wasn't traveling yet. And, I mean, mm-hmm. travel is, for me, not necessarily a passion. It's a way of being that I like. So mm-hmm. it's not so much like I'm passionate about travel. It's more that I believe that travel is an important, like, part of my well-being, part of my, like, learning process and right. things like that. Right. Um, so, I mean, for me, it was I wanted to kind of – AARP um, was limiting in that I was only exposed to sort of one issue, which is an important one, sort of what are we doing with our ever-increasing aging population – but I wanted to be sort of more hardcore global health, hardcore science. And so I was looking for other opportunities to do that. And so I eventually landed at the CDC, um, but working for a World Health Organization program. So I ended up moving to Atlanta to work on this WHO initiative that was led by the U.S. Center for Disease Control. So okay. that was like more squarely global health, which is what I wanted to do. Right. How long did you do that? So I stayed there for almost three years. Okay. Was that mm-hmm. a was that a rewarding experience? Was you know, was it in line with, you know, the direction you wanted to go in career wise? Um, it was great. I mean, I took my first ever trip out of the US. Okay. Um while I was at the C D C. Um, I was working on foodborne disease, um, surveillance and capacity building in emerging economies, which was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, really had an amazing professional experience, um, was given sort of leadership opportunities that I would have never expected. I mean, at one point, I was leading a scientific or co-leading a scientific working group in Europe 
looking at uh, burden of disease and some metrics around measuring that. And I mean, I was in Amsterdam all the time, working with colleagues in the Netherlands, working in Switzerland at WHO a lot, spent a lot of time in Geneva. But then I also got to do things like go to Guatemala and train uh, epidemiologists and microbiologists on how to respond to a foodborne disease outbreak. Wow. And so I got to do, you know, like work on crafting that program, being support for senior scientists. I mean, I got to go to a castle in Switzerland. I mean, I I just did incredible work. Mm -hmm. Work that in many ways was far beyond my sort of work experience, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff I did at AARP enabled me to be comfortable among that level of talent. Right. You know, I never felt like intimidated by the fact that like most of my colleagues had like a gazillion PhDs and I just had a bachelor's degree. Oh, so now you seem like your experiences now has been like global. So you were at the CDC in Atlanta doing all Mm -hmm. those things. And after that, uh, you'd stayed here for three years. And after that, Mm -hmm. what did you do? Where did you go? I moved to Chicago for a year, got pregnant, (laughs) (laughs) Um, stayed there for a year, um, and... uh, You had your son in Chicago? Yep, had my son in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Realized that Chicago was not for me. I mean, I took like a... I took a a job at a nonprofit in Mm -hmm. Chicago that was like looking at domestic violence. And I had got like a super senior role because I had all this like crazy experience doing different things. Right. But, you know, it was fulfilling in a very different way in that, you know, the my private life at the time was kind of in shambles. And mm-hmm. I working for Wings, which was the domestic violence nonprofit I worked for in Chicago, literally was the community I needed for that time in my life. Okay. So I couldn't have managed that and some of the emotional things I was going through mm-hmm. in your private extreme, life. Yeah. My private life was this sort of extremely, so, I mean, I'm at a domestic violence nonprofit. So the oh. level of empathy and compassion of the type of people that are going to work there. I mean, my boss, Terry Channer was literally like a godsend to me during the year I was in Chicago. I mean, anything a boss could do to support you as an employee, like she did like 10 times that. Okay. So, I was in Chicago for a year, but at the end of the day, once I had my son, I sort of went through a depression for much of the year after I had him, mm-hmm. but somehow was like, all right, Sheree, like, this can't, we're not going to just like give up on all our dreams now. Like we've got to figure it out. Right. So I, I knew that being globally centered was just a core part of my identity. Um, and so I, you know, started applying for jobs um, okay. back in international development space and eventually landed at CARE in Atlanta, which was like my dream uh, global humanitarian organization to work for because they were the only uh, global org at that time that had an African-American female CEO. Okay. And I was like, I want to work there. And so... I applied, 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 and they called me for an interview. I went, I think I had three or four interviews, and uh, they offered me the job, so I moved back to Atlanta. Wow, uh, with your son. Yep, 
with my son. Okay, so single mom and yep. taking on a new position. Back to your comfort zone, of course, Atlanta. Is that around the time where I met you? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, And so Kira was, I think you were going to New Mexico a lot, right? Is it New Mexico? Or oh, no. So I, I met you after Kira. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, I met you when I was living in Mexico, the country, like old Mexico. Oh, and you used to visit Atlanta a lot. Yeah, I used to visit Atlanta a lot. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. I know, so when did you get the entrepreneurial bug? Oh, it wasn't until probably four years after I moved back to Atlanta, because I actually maybe six, seven, seven years after that. I mean, I went to Atlanta, I stayed at CARE for three years. Took my first trip to Africa while working for Care with Sierra Leone. That was life changing and amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, traveled all over the U.S. for Care as well, um, and then like had incredible experiences. Till this day, I mean, one of my um, mentors was my my first boss at Care. I mean, I ended up getting promoted at Care and doing a bunch of cool stuff and responded to the Haiti earthquake and. Mm-hmm. Ended up on the board of Big Boy from Outcast, like nonprofit board. Like I just lived a whole life in Atlanta, and and it was great. But Atlanta felt super limiting to me, like from a social perspective. Like it felt like I don't know. This sounds kind of like crass, but I always kind of felt like the smartest person in the room because I had this very like global perspective and coming right. from like New York and DC, and I just felt like at least at that time, Atlanta has changed a lot. At that time, it felt like, you know, everyone just wanted, you know, a big old house in Southwest Atlanta and like 2.5 kids in a sense. Like that just felt like what everybody's dream was. And that wasn't my thing. Right. So I just didn't fit. Like I felt like I didn't fit. Right. And so I was like, "Mm, it's time for me to move abroad. Like I've dipped my toe in, dipped my toe in. I want an opportunity that takes me out of the U.S. And so then I went to work for CIMIT, which is a World Bank Agricultural Research Center. And I felt way more at home. I sort of felt the same vibes as when I worked at CDC slash WHO. And so moving to Mexico City was one of the best decisions I ever made. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. I was there for almost four years. Okay. Um, So that's actually when we met is when I was living in Mexico full time. But because my son actually stayed back in Atlanta, that's oh, why I was coming. Oh, okay. So you was coming back to Atlanta a lot. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. And that's, that's where we connected. So I got to yep. interject here because I got to tell this story to my listeners. So Matt Charay, we hit it off, became buddies. Um, later during the year, you know, we stayed in contact. I got this random email, random email saying that, uh, uh, invitation to a trip free of charge to Africa, um, Equatorial Guinea. And I was like, now nah, this is the time where I was an accountant at the time for a nonprofit. And this was during our audit season. So this is like the middle of an audit. You know, anyone who's an accountant know how much work that is. I have to figure out a way how to get on this trip. So I begged my boss to let me go and I promise them promise her that I'll like work 10 times harder or, or overtime to make sure I make up for the week that I was gone 
that was like one of the best decisions I ever made because the trip was amazing, Sheree. And I want to thank you for, you know, including me on this invitation list. So how did no that, problem. how did that come about? How did you get the position to like invite all these amazing dynamic influences and celebrities free of charge to a conference in Africa? How did that happen? You know, it's so funny because I, at the time, couldn't even have told you what an influencer was. Like, that's how far removed from those things I was. I mean, I worked, I was an agriculture nerd living Mm -hmm. on a research in Mexico. So I knew nothing about sort of, you know, influencers or like, I just had no clue about any of those things at all. But what I did have was like, actual legit work experience something that i feel like is underrated these days right but um because i was already working in africa and because i was specifically working in agriculture um the conference was put on by one of my really close friends uh, vanessa masters her stepmom's um foundation okay honoring the late uh leon Sullivan, who was the first african-american to sit on a Fortune 500 board in America. He also started U.S. divestment from South Africa during apartheid. So her father was like this amazing beacon of Pan-Africanism, but also African-Americans doing business in Africa. And so he had this amazing legacy. She was carrying it forward via this foundation in his name. They were doing these elaborate summits uh, biannually in Africa and then in D.C., you know, they were really the only black organization that was doing things that were at the same level of these sort of well-funded, wealthy, white-run organizations that were sort of friends of Africa. Mm-hmm. And so um, the uh, conference chair uh, was the former president of Ghana, John Kfour, And he wanted the conference to center around agriculture as a diversification strategy for African nations who had found oil. So Equatorial Guinea, super small, speak Spanish, um, but they have oil. And Mm -hmm. so they've been really wealthy from the profits from that um, as an individual ruling family. But as a nation sort of leapfrogging development wise um, because they found oil like in the last, you know, two decades. Right. So all that to say they had to find, I mean, a president, a former president is not going to do the work of putting together a conference. And so uh, Vanessa told her dad and the stepmom, like my friend Sheree works in agriculture for the world bank. Like she could totally pull the speakers together. She could do all that stuff. We should just hire her as a consultant. So they did. They hired me as a consultant. And because this was my friend, you know, I spent a lot of time at their house around her parents and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, one day we were talking and they were just kind of like, we need more young people. Like, you know, people are aging out in the foundation. We need new energy. There's this Afropolitan thing sort of happening. And, you know, and so my friend Vanessa was like, well, Sheree knows people. And it, it really was just from my college network. So it wasn't that I like legit was like a well-known person, like, I pledged in college and all of the stuff I did in college meant I had some network of people. Mm-hmm. And so what I really did was just invite my personal network. And I didn't look at it like I was inviting influencers. Like 
that hadn't even registered to me. I don't know if there was a I, term called influencers at the time. This was like 2013 around that time. I mean, I didn't even, what really happened was I invited people I knew directly in oh. my network because they were my friends. Wow. So I invited. You had, you had a, an amazing network because there were some dope people on that trip. And then what happened was I invited them and then they would like tell someone they knew. And then I'd start having people like Lovey Ajayi emailing like, hey, you know, I want to be a part of it. Or someone saying like, oh, I have this friend that's a great writer and this person should be a part of what you're doing. And it was funny because to me, I wasn't doing anything. Like I was just like helping my friends' parents with their conference. Listen, so I, I don't didn't even look at it like this big thing. That that experience never comes <laughs> up. Come, so it was, that was amazing. You didn't realize the power you had at the time because you were, you know, important in bringing all these amazing dynamic people from all over the country, by the way. Not just New York, you know, from Chicago, from Atlanta, I think from yeah. Cali, all over the place. And it was like... Yeah, Detroit. I mean, people are now like rep- whole House of Representatives members. And, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, was, it was amazing. I mean, it was, you know, it, it it basically like once... I mean, what happened was all I started getting all these recommendations. And then I stepped back and was like... I mean, I knew initially not to just invite like my personal friends. I mean, mm-hmm. that's how you got invited. You weren't necessarily like in my, you know, immediate, immediate circle. But I was like, all right, I've got this opportunity. Like who in my network should I extend it to that will make the most of it? And that was my mindset inherently. Like it was just like, I could have just invited my 50 homegirls. Right. But I was like, I just sort of knew that like being that for me, you know, Africa and sort of creating a new and modern narrative was core to my being Mm. and I at the time I was living in Mexico but I was traveling like 70% of the time largely to the African continent and to some degree India Bangladesh Nepal so Mm. for me it was like oh this is an opportunity to show the Africa I know to as many people as I can that will take it and do something with it right and I definitely like Till this day, when I look at what people on that trip have done with it, I accomplished my goal. Right. So even though I didn't necessarily take it and build it into some big thing, the Summit Series of Africa or whatever people wanted me to build it to, like the goal I had for myself has been accomplished like a hundredfold. Right. Well, I'm still proud to be an Afropolitan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before, like, it was a party. In right. New York City, That's right. You know? Like, yeah, I thought you came up with that name. Way before any of this. Right. Yeah, way before any of that. Yep. So let's talk about Tastemakers Africa. How did that idea come about in terms of starting this uh, experience um, marketing place, marketplace company? Um, how did it come about? Um, it was a couple of things. I mean, Afropolitans was definitely in many ways like a precursor. Mm-hmm. So starting that, doing that trip realizing that there was this huge appetite for a different sort of African experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And also realizing the power that happens when interesting and dynamic people come together. I sort of wanted to be able to do that again and again and again and again. Wow. And And you know, that that kind of came about like accidentally, right? It's not something that you 
you meant to do. It's just something that, you know, that an opportunity came. You were just creating as you go along. And then you brought... An opportunity came and then I turned it into something else. So like the foundation would have been fine for me to just bring whoever I knew. Mm-hmm. I, as Sheree LaToy Robinson, knew that I had to make it mean something. So the opportunity came, definitely wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what I did with the opportunity, I had to like have a bit of foresight around it. Oh, that's dope. Okay, so it was the Afropolitan was the, like the you know yeah that was definitely a seed and i think i think bigger than like from a structure perspective it was also just the first time i had ever done anything independently Mm -hmm. so i had decidedly been like an employee at these big bureaucratic but like uh prestigious organizations the world bank cdc care like I like saying that I work at the World Bank. I like saying that I work at CARE. Like right. I, they help weight, especially in the communities that were important to me. And so for me, that was sort of where all of my, for lack of a better term, sort of professional stock was placed in that. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I could do something in many ways on my own and sort of create something had never really occurred to me. Like mm. it had never been something I thought I could do. So I think... If nothing else, Afropolitan showed me what I could do in just executing my own vision mm-hmm. and like just sort of. And so that and then the fact that I was by this point, I mean, after Afropolitan, I was still in Africa all the time for work. Mm-hmm. And so uh, a turning point for me, well, there was kind of two. One was in Nairobi. I'd went to Nairobi for the first time. And uh, my advisor to my collegiate Delta chapter, mm-hmm. she was like, oh, you got to meet Tawana. I remember when you were online, I had mentioned this to you. And she's like the like 20 years ahead of you version of you. And you got to meet her. You got to meet her. You got to meet her. Uh-huh. So one of my chapter sorors was in Nairobi at the same time as me. We had never met, but had been told about each other. And she was working on this MTV program called Sugar. It was a, a, a series that MTV did in Africa. And so I met up with her and she was like, oh, you got to meet the young people that I work with. They're amazing. Mm-hmm. And so that night we went out for cocktails and I met them. And they were some of the most incredible people I'd ever met in my life. I mean, Kimasi, at that time, uh, Jay-Z had worn his, fashion line at Live 8 in Philly, and um, um, Wanuri had just come back from the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these were, like, young people my age, but, like, they were not thinking about working for some NGO or, or getting a job. Like, they were, like, creating their universe wow. from Africa, like, from Nairobi. So I ended up seeing Nairobi through their eyes and so mm-hmm. I was on rooftops and just doing everything. And now Instagram had come out by now. So I started sharing some of my travels there and the same thing happened. Like everywhere I went, I went to Johannesburg and uh, my, my original co-founder, Stephanie O'Connor, she was a photographer from Brooklyn, but living in Johannesburg and same thing. Like I went, met Stephanie for the first time. We kicked it at some advertising agency party in Johannesburg, just worlds that I didn't even know about in New York because I don't come from that kind of world at all, right. let alone know it in Africa. And so my African experiences just were 
you know, completely different than everything the media was sharing. And so I kind of became a de facto expert, you mm-hmm. know, via Instagram, via Facebook. And so people would just be like, how do I go to Africa like that? And then Afropolitans came and sort of took that and amplified it through those 80 people. And so I sort of got this reputation as the like dope, sexy, cool Africa plug. Like that became my thing. (laughs) Wow. And I was like, this is a business. Like there's something to this. Uh And so the early iterations of tastemakers, when we were doing like group trips and Instagram, you know, before we became a full tech platform like we are now, like really was birthed from those experiences. Mm -hmm. So now you have this vision and now you want to form this business. How were you able to take, you know, that idea and vision and turn it into a, a business, you know, Tastemakers Africa in terms of it becoming, you know, entity on its own and you running it? Mm hmm. Um, well, it's funny. It's not a glorious story of like me deciding to take a leap. I, I, um, I first called it Rare Customs and consulting firm. So I spent like, say that again. I'm sorry. You just tapped out for some reason. Um, I first, I first, um, I was saying it's, it wasn't like a glorious story of me like making a decision to take the leap. It mm-hmm. like definitely wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. I first started it as a consulting firm and I thought that I could like convince tourism boards to let me like do their tourism strategy. Mm-hmm. That definitely didn't work. I had no credentials in tourism. So mm-hmm. like I spent like a few hundred dollars on really nice printed out presentations and went like door to door at uh, consulates and embassies only to like never get a call back. So that was pretty funny. I did that for like a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I started thinking about doing it as an app. And so what happened was I knew graphic design. Like it was like a hobby I had, like even when I lived in Atlanta, I had like a side hustle doing like marketing for restaurants just because I like Photoshop. Mm -hmm. And so I designed the first mock-up of the app myself. Okay. And I'm just like a really good Googler. So a couple of things happened. I got introduced to uh, a friend of mine who's also an entrepreneur called Janine Houseith, who had started something called the Around the Way app to like get black businesses on an app. Mm-hmm. And so I knew she had built an app. So like I met with her and asked her the same question you asked me, like, how did you start? And she said she drew it out on paper and then found a designer. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, I can do one better than that because I am a designer. Right. So I like took it the next step. I reached out to like a bunch of different dev shops and engineering shops to see like how much it would cost to like build it. Cause clearly I didn't know how to code and, Learning the code just didn't seem like what I wanted to do, though in retrospect, I probably should have. Right. Um, but anyway, this one guy was like, you don't have enough money to build this. But what I will do is like put this into like a fake app that makes it look like you have an app mm-hmm. so that you can get investors. And so this guy that I didn't know in Austin, Texas, literally compiled my Photoshop app mock-up into something that looked like and functioned like a prototype. And mm-hmm. so that's how I got my first prototype. He sent it to me. He bundled it with an icon and sent it to me. And then I went 
to um, the Africa Policy Forum in D.C. and um, met my first advisor to my startup. I, would, I wasn't even calling it a startup yet. I just knew I was trying to build something. Mm-hmm. And so he, I met this guy, John Gossier, who's now an investor in Tastemakers. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I think you're on to something. We need something like this. I travel in Africa all the time. He actually started three of the first accelerator incubators in Africa, period. And so he talked to me two weeks later. I was like, well, do you have advisors for your business? I was like, I don't even have a business. I just have <laughs> thing on my phone. Like, what are you talking about? Right. And so John was like, all right, I'm going to be an advisor. This is the agreement we should sign. Da, 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 da. I don't know what I was doing. I ended up like offering like 2% of my company, which was like an epic fail in retrospect. Mm-hmm. But I did it. And John, you know, introduced me to the world of startups. And I got a couple more advisors. And then a good friend of mine who was on the trip to Equatorial Guinea uh, actually sent me the link for a startup competition in Nigeria called She Leads Africa. Uh-huh. And so I applied to that with my rinky dink, you know, fake app on my phone and a PowerPoint presentation. And by that time, I had posted a trip to Ghana for sale on my personal Facebook and mm-hmm. it had like sold out in a couple of weeks. Wow. And so I had sort of proof of concept from that. Right. And uh, went to Lagos in 2014 and won the competition with this like rare customs app for traveling in Africa mm-hmm. called Tastemakers. The business wasn't even called Tastemakers, still called Rare Customs. Mm-hmm. Um, and went to Lagos, won the competition. What did and you so win? I won $10,000 and a crazy amount of press coverage, like ended up in on Forbes and the UN Foundation named me like a emerging woman entrepreneur to watch. Like, 2015 was like insane from wow. a this was like, this is was with like, your fake app with my fake app that didn't work <laughs> so i used the money to hire a developer uh-huh. which was a fail because i definitely didn't know what to look for in a developer and wasn't smart enough to ask more questions of my advisors so that 10k quickly went down the drain mm. what did you do after um she Leads Africa had given me enough visibility that I was now getting outreach from investors. So people um, now was now I, reaching out to you to invest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People were basically, or She Leads Africa would be like, "Hey, uh, we ran into this investor that wants to support our program." We, as the winner, you know, you're basically like the spokesperson. So She Leads Africa was like pivotal to my success. Like mm-hmm. Yasmin and Afua have and continue to be angels to me, both at a personal level uh, and, and a business level. And She Leads Africa was by far, you know, in the course and the history of tastemakers, probably one of the most pivotal moments is winning that. Wow. Um, so I ended up, you know, closing my first investor, uh, a guy called Pule Takobang, out of South Africa. He's based in Johannesburg. I flew to Johannesburg to meet with him, uh, closed him. And then, crazy enough, um, a friend, a guy I used to date who lived in Baltimore, introduced me to his friend who was a news anchor on Fox or like a news reporter on Fox in New York. 
who then told me she had a friend in D.C. that she thought I had to talk, that I should talk to. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, and she didn't really give me context. She just said, you know, he's done a lot of stuff in Africa. I think he'd love what you're doing. I said, okay. Next thing you know, I get on the phone and he was like, you don't know me, but I know who exactly who you are. And wow. I was like, that's weird. And he was like, yeah, you're the person that had those 80 lit people on the plane with us to Equatorial Guinea. Are you serious? So my <laughs> second big investor was on the plane with us to Equatorial Guinea. We were rowdy. That was like so plain. <laughs> it was so plain. It was like, it was like the sister ratchet before that was over her, like for sure. Oh my God. But yeah, he was on the plane. He was on the plane and uh-huh. he remembered who I was. He remembered that I led the group. He remembered me throughout the time. And so within a few weeks, I got my second investor. So I raised $100,000. Uh, $100,000 off a fake app. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I still didn't have. Were you, do- time, were you doing still- this full time, by the way? Were you, you know. Um, by that time, yeah. Because I got fired from my job. So I had moved. I had left Mexico. I had moved to New York. I took a job working for uh, Alicia Keys's Keep a Child Alive Foundation. Uh-huh. I did not like it and didn't do a good job of hiding that I didn't like it. So mm. like literally six weeks after moving to New York, I got fired from my job and then wasn't eligible for unemployment because I had lived outside of the U.S. for almost four years. Mm. So I was like, new relationship. Everything's great. And then everything like crashes. It was so crazy. So I, I don't even know what I, I was like doing like random stuff for people, building websites, like whatever I could do to like pay my half of the rent right. for like a solid six months. Cause I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was and this is to before get, you got the investment, you know, the yeah, this is before the investment. So all mm-hmm. that stuff's happening. So then as I realized that I want to build tastemakers as a tech startup, at some point, I decide I want to work for a startup. So I ended up taking a sales job at like a healthcare startup in New York. Mm-hmm. And so I worked there. And then a year to the day of getting fired from Keep a Child Alive, uh, a VC invest in the healthcare startup, fires the CEO, well, basically moves the CEO to Australia. And I sort of go to as collateral damage someone who was close to the CEO. Wow. So like literally a year to the day. And so then was my moment of like, I'm not doing this anymore. So I stopped applying for jobs and went super hard. So I think that was July of 2014. Mm -hmm. And by September of 2014, I had one. She was Africa. Mm. But two months later. Wow. So then the whole, I mean, 2015 was when I closed 100K and was able to focus on tastemakers full time. Okay. Um, from 2015. Mm-hmm. So how did things go from there now that you have to invest at 100K and you have somewhat of an idea where you wanted to take this um, business? Mm-hmm. What did you do uh, now that you had, you know, a level of comfort, you know, at least financially? I mean, to some degree, um, I think, I mean, I was able to pay my bills. Mm-hmm. but I was still bleeding money. I had to pay developers because I wasn't an engineer. Mm. So I did a couple things. I built the first version of the website myself. So I sort of kept pouring money into, I mean, I think I spent probably 70% of the, that money on horrible 
outsourced development shop. Mm. I, you know, use a guy in Kenya that was like 30 K down the grain. Then I had a recommendation from one of the investors to use a shop in DC. And that was like another 40 K down the drain. They couldn't get what we needed. So like, I literally just bled cash. Mm -hmm. Like it was horrible. And the only thing that was keeping us afloat were these group trips like Mm. that we were doing, which wasn't even my core business, which also meant I was super distracted. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't even like, like the app was something I was trying to do, but it was like, I had to do these trips to make some money because I was bleeding capital trying to build the app. Right. And the trips take time. I mean, managing group trips. I mean, everybody with an Instagram account wants to like do group trips now, but like, it's a beast. Right. Like, How many people you would have on these trips? I mean, usually anywhere from 10 to 15 people mm-hmm. um, on the trips. And so, I mean, that business grew. We did like 200 K uh, in 2015. Wow. 200 K in 2016. Um, Just by doing but, trips. <laughs> yeah. But we, I mean, not in profit. Right. I mean, you're also operation costs. I mean, yeah. I mean, cost of fulfillment is like, I mean, and I wasn't, financially savvy so i wasn't doing things like negotiating better rates with hotels i mean i was literally like booking on hotels.com mm. like i wow i just didn't know better like wow. i just didn't know better. I didn't, I didn't know anything i wasn't getting sponsors and then we were doing like events at soho house and this and that to try to like build brand awareness and which i think you did an amazing job. job doing though building brand awareness yeah I mean, it was good. It was good, but it definitely didn't always contribute to the bottom line. Mm-hmm. At least I didn't have the um, the structure in place to like really make a proper like sales cycle out of it. I didn't even mm-hmm. know what a sales cycle was. Right. So I like there was just um, yeah, it was just a lot. So that was like 2015, and through most of 2016, and by the end of 2016, I was burned out. I had lost my co-founders. I had lost, like, our first early employee. Didn't really, like, have a team. Couldn't figure out what to do. And on New Year's Eve, my relationship with my long-term partner ended. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, our trip we had in Ghana, like, went to complete shit. Like, it just Mm. went to complete shit. And it was horrible. Like, like the end of 2016 was, like, probably some of the darkest days of my business. Like it was just horrible. I mean, like getting blasted in a big Facebook group drags all over the internet. Wow. Black people have no, black people have no chill. (laughs) White people can make mistakes in their business. And it's like, Oh, Jim, give him another million. He'll, you know, get customer service better. Right. Black people. And inherently it's also because we are also taking bigger risk with our smaller pool of money. Mm -hmm. You know, they are going to go in and they did. I mean, it got to the point where I had to like stop reading the comments because people were like going so far, like making memes. I mean, wow. It was, it was one of the most hurtful experiences of my life. Was it attacking you or was it attacking tastemakers? Me. It was personal. Oh, wow. People had, I mean, I'm the founder of Tastemakers. Right. And so, I mean, when you become a CEO of a business, unless you're really sleuthy, like it's you. Right. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, people, it was, it was, I mean, thousands of comments and the head of that Facebook group who I thought was like my friend, 
you know, ends up like putting it on her personal page. Like wow. for more people to see like, it was it was just crazy. Like I had never I had never in my like adult now I'm in control of my life life experienced anything like that. Mm-hmm. But in 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 retrospect, I mean there was a lot building up to that moment, a lot of opportunities where I could have sort of done things differently and just sort of just was overwhelmed and and really didn't know how to like backpedal or backtrack or I just didn't know and and sort of was running my business on a hope and a a prayer Mm -hmm. which left us open you know to risk right and so you know that that's what happened and so shit hit the fan and I mean that was December bleeding into January of 2017. I mean, it was very, very rough mm-hmm. and it didn't look good. I mean, we had to issue all kinds of refunds. We had no more money in the bank. I couldn't pay my rent. I was like, it was just, I didn't know what I was going to do. And what did you do? I called my landlord and I was like, I'm not going to be able to pay rent. Can you tell me when you're going to evict me? Wow. That's literally what I said. Uh-huh. I just wanted to be able to see, like, at what point was I going to have to, like, move in with my family somewhere. Right. Like, I wanted to know. Like, I knew New York takes a long time to be evicted. Mm -hmm. So I was like, can you just give me a realistic estimate so that I can, like, move my life accordingly? Right. And turns out my landlord is a, was a venture capital lawyer. So he knew all about startups and tech and founders and da-da-da-da-da. Uh-huh. And so he basically was like, well, do you have investors in the pipeline? And I was like, well, I'm looking for them. And he was like, well, if you have an investor in the pipeline, you can stay through the end of your lease. Just just actually pay me all my money when you close the investor. Wow. And so I was like, all right. So I <sighs> knew I had to get an investor because I had to be able to pay my landlord. Is that what kept the business going? Not having to pay rent. Yeah. Because I basically, like, they, I mean, I thank God for, like, my Brooklyn friends and family, basically. I mean, my Brooklyn friends were family. Like, mm-hmm. we would eat dinner at friends' houses so that, like, I didn't have to buy so much food. We, like, me and my son. My son and, and I. Oh, wow. I was going to ask you yeah, about that. Yeah, because now it's just him and I. Right. So I'm, like, running on fumes, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. But now at least I have this sort of rent thing. So we were living very, very, very minimal, mm-hmm. like very minim- minimal for most of 2017. Wow. Um, and then uh, one of my advisors, uh, a woman called by the name of Bahia Robinson, introduced me to a contact she had met at Microsoft, who then introduced me to his best friend, who is one of the co-founders of uh, Sundial, which, you know, owned, owned Shea Moisture. Right. And uh, Nima, so not Rich Lou, who, like, everybody knows in the news, but Nima, his co-founder of that company, ended up investing 250000 into tastemakers so that I could pivot the business to this tech-driven marketplace. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. This is why I have this podcast. Your story is amazing. Very amazing. I didn't know all this. You were chilling. Nobody we used, really. We used to hang, you know, I used to see you on every now and then on the train. We used to, you know, chop it yeah. up, but not really talk, you know what I'm saying? So no. you, you kept it cool, girl. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my 
my very, very, like, my best friend Inez and a few other people sort of knew the nitty-gritty. But, I mean, it also was, like, and my friend Claire, who also runs an amazing travel company called Up in the Air Life, mm-hmm. I mean, she paid my rent. Like, wow. You know, I my friends were, I mean, whew, and my family. I mean, my family was super supportive, you know, in the best way they could be. So I was just really, really fortunate to have sort of the right set of circumstances and the willingness to keep pushing. Cause most people probably would have got a, gotten a job. Oh yeah. And I somehow knew that that wasn't an option, right. which was either crazy or inspired or probably both. I don't know. Yeah, but it, yeah. So it's dope. Got that investor and so where's tastemakers Africa now, you know, in terms of, you know, the business and you know, what is it now? Uh, yep. So um, it's very similar to Airbnb in mm-hmm. that, you know, you go on our platform and you're not just booking like a 10 day trip that leaves in December. You're booking an experience with a local creative entrepreneur. So mm. the idea for us here is to connect people to young African creatives and entrepreneurs so that they can share a collective experience together. Mm-hmm. So you know, the idea sort of beyond that is really to like change the way we think about travel and change the way we think about like locals versus visitors and really to create employment opportunities uh, for young people in Africa so that they can stay focused on what they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. So you've got DJs hosting nightlife tours on our platform. You've got artists doing studio visits. You've got chefs doing you know, traditional pop-up dinners. I mean, you name it and it's on our platform. And so we've built, you know, this incredible community of hosts across Accra, Johannesburg and Cape Town that are just really, really dynamic people. Um, And it's one of a kind, unique things that you can't find anywhere else. And most experiences are, you know, anywhere between two and eight hours. So these are a la carte. People are going on tastemakersafrica.com oh, they already know they're going to Ghana for a week in October and they're going and booking these experiences with these locals. So it's kind of like a DIY trip building. And we also, you know, give hotel recommendations and stuff like that. But the core of our business is authentic connections between Mm -hmm. people in Africa making it happen in their cities and the rest of the world. Like that's the core of who we are. Wow. That's I don't, I don't hear of, anybody who's doing what you're doing with tastemakers um, in terms of like connecting entrepreneurs, travel, you know, all that dopeness in, in one via, I guess, tech with a tech platform. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, when I thought about Afropolitans, when I thought about the early days of tastemakers, you know, I realized that my, superpower my friend Brian actually coined this so I have to give him credit but my superpower is being a convener and so I was like well I've got all this African knowledge I'm a convener I'm a nerd Mm -hmm. like how do these all sort of live together in one place and so I think as crazy as the journey was I mean it's definitely not the like smooth startup journey that people celebrate it's real though and that's exactly what i wanted you to share the realness of being an entrepreneur and how you were able to keep it going i think you did all that yeah 
I mean, it was by hook or by crook. And I mean, even still, even after the 250K, I mean, there was still like the way I thought we had to launch a market, spent a lot of money. It was wrong. Mm-hmm. Had to figure out how to come back from that. That investor, I mean, Nima invested another 150K after the 250. So this is one individual man. Wow. Black man. Wow. From Liberia invested 400K in my business. Wow. You know, and then from there, you know, we went to booking.com, which is the largest uh, online travel company in the world, you know, accepted us into their accelerator. I was the first black woman to be accept, um, accepted into that. And then we became VC back just this past October. So Precursor Ventures are led by Charles Hudson, who's been called, you know, the smartest early stage VC in the game, period. Not just like the smartest black one, but like mm-hmm. the smartest investment in the game. He backed us. And so they invested 400K. So now, you know, we're a venture backed company that has raised, you know, almost a million dollars over the past four years, which is what most companies raise to get them through 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and now we're, you know, in a new era. You know, I went from literally three and a half years of horrible trial and error experiences, partners, right. trial and error, everything, to now, you know, having a CTO who's amazing and based in New York. I mean, our team just ballooned to seven people mm-hmm. and we're distributed across the world and they're amazing. And uh, we've driven almost, I mean, this year alone, we've driven almost $100,000 into the hands of young people in African cities. Wow. you know, that are hosting experiences on our platform. Mm-hmm. So now we're growing, you know, okay. we're growing every day. We're about to expand into Nairobi next month. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at being in 10 cities by the end of 2019 um, and still sort of socializing the new model um, mm-hmm. because a lot of people, you know, know us as a trips company or maybe know us from Instagram, but it's really now about, you know, getting to, you know, uh, exponential growth and really getting people to also be fearless in how they travel Africa and be willing to do more than just go on a group trip and to right. be willing to sort of be more dynamic in the types of experiences they want to do. You know, there's more to Ghana than the slave castles. Mm-hmm. There's more to Nairobi than the, you know, draft center. There's more to Johannesburg than Mandela's house. And so really socializing that and telling those stories um, and the stories of the people on our platform mm-hmm. um, in a way that really inspires people to see Africa differently. That's, right. that's really what we're focused on. Right. So how do you feel going through all that to be where you are now? How do you feel in terms of, do you feel comfortable? Do you feel anxious? You know, how do you feel? Are you happy? How do I feel? Um, I had a bit of a meltdown at the end of 2018, and I don't even think I really realized it, but it started building sort of, I think, in October when I really reflect on how I was feeling, Mm -hmm. and um, it was horrible. I mean, I definitely went through like a very dark phase at the end of last year, just having done this for four years and sort of, you know, some days feeling excited about what I'm doing, other days feeling like, How has it taken me four years just to get to this point? You know, obviously looking left and looking right and, 
you know, not always running my own race, but, mm. you know, just all of these kind of things. I was really struggling, uh, even into the beginning of this year, like even into January, I was just sort of on pins and needles and, uh, just struggling so much so that like I went to Brazil to visit my like fiance and like had like a breakdown. Like I just couldn't, like, I just, you know, last end of December, I was struggling like tears every day, you know, well into February, I was just really struggling and mm-hmm. ended up, you know, losing my fiance just because I couldn't, like, I couldn't manage, you know, wow. I, couldn't, I couldn't, it was really, really rough. And then I came back to New York from Brazil and I did the landmark forum and it changed my life, mm-hmm. like literally a week ago. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Good landmark forum completely changed my life and I'm generally like thrilled, but I think, you know, people don't talk about how dark being an entrepreneur is. People don't talk about, people talk about, Oh my gosh, I raised a million dollars, but the weight of what it feels like mm-hmm. to have people put, especially your early investors, cause they're putting their own cash, you know, right. VCs are putting in someone else's cash, right. but to have like a black man, give me $400,000 for something I believe in. Right. Uh, that's, and, that's big. <laughs> that's big. You know, like it's huge, but it is the scary. pressure. The it pressure is scary. Is it's scary. Right. And then, you know, you're, I'm realizing I've been unsettled for the better part of four years, you know, ended sort of my long-term relationship and got into a new one and, and facing difficulties just because I'm like, you know, basically depressed, mm. you know, and, just dealing with the ups and downs and teams and growth and managing and also like the sticky issues of being African-American doing business in Africa. I mean, it is just, you name it, you know, it's happened in the course of building this business. And so it was really, really muddy Mm -hmm. for a while. And, you know, landmark forum was pivotal in sort of, a examination of self and a stillness that I had not created for myself or taken since starting this business. Mm-hmm. And it really enabled me to sort of look at my narrative a lot differently, look at integrity as like a core value and really just, just reset. And, right. you know, amazing things have, have happened for me since that experience. Uh, I guess really now, two weeks ago, I guess. And uh, it, it's just been incredible. And so I think, you know, Tastemakers is in a really solid position. We have an amazing team ahead of us. I, as a CEO, am both at a personal level and at a skill level. I mean, I just started my own, uh, I just built my personal website like two days ago. Oh, and Okay. I, it's not even like launched and live yet, but one of the things I really wanted to do was launch a newsletter to share some of these stories and to share some of the tools and things I use to sort of keep pushing because right. like ultimately like this whole journey has been about breaking eggs. You know, mm. you, you, can't, you can't make an omelet without doing that. And so, you know, Tastemakers is my omelet, you know, basically. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm excited about, you know, where things are headed. Um, our numbers look great. Um, 
Our team is crushing it. They work. I mean, Sunday night, 50% of my team was up until like three in the morning in their respective time zones. And there's mm-hmm. no overtime in startups. You right. know what I mean? Right. You know, great, you know, venture investor uh, going into another fundraise in the next few weeks um, to really, you know, take things to another level. But we're on track, you know, to drive a million dollars into the hands of young African entrepreneurs in our cities by the end of 2019 and to create thousands and thousands of meaningful connections between them and travelers who want, you know, an authentic, dope, inspired experience wherever they are in Africa. Like, that's what we're on track to do just this year. Wow. You've come a long way, Sheree. Wow. <laughs> I kept on saying wow because I didn't know all this. You make it look so easy from the um, looking in from the outside. But uh, <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing this uh, real raw journey with me. Uh so what advice do you think you would give any budding entrepreneurs? Uh, Amy? Um, ooh, what advice? Um, there's no such thing. I mean, a lot of people say like, oh, just jump out and do it. But I think one thing that doesn't get enough coverage is uh, testing, right? Mm. And so, for example... I had some like evidence from Afropolitans on sort of the general vibe that people might want from a brand. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I reflect on it, I don't think I did enough testing Mm -hmm. of the product or what people wanted or sales funnels. And so I think that that kind of stuff shouldn't be underestimated, nor should it be overcomplicated. So right now, today, you know, we're running a survey at Tastemakers to understand like how people find out about the tours they book and we're doing it like man on the street. Like we've got some university students and our team and Accra in Johannesburg literally going up to the places tourists go and one-to-one asking them the survey questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that stuff is not the sexy stuff that everybody likes to talk about, but that data is like incredibly powerful, not in just how you build a product if you're looking at tech, but in also how you understand like your marketing cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm a biologist, so I knew nothing about marketing. I knew nothing about sales. I knew nothing about brand building. I did everything myself. I did the design myself, our logo myself. I still run our Instagram. So I did all these things on my own. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a wealth of strategy and sort of brand building and design that comes from research and testing that I just severely underestimated. Mm -hmm. And then I think the second one is like really just being clear and confident in what you're building and understanding that like the journey is the journey and like get really comfortable in that. Right. Mm. So like we have seen at this stage, I mean, I'm four years in, I've literally seen so-called competitors come and go, mm. you know, in this time frame. And so I think it's really important that you are like laser focused on what you're doing and that you're unafraid to say no. Mm. You know, there's a bunch of people that think tastemakers should have gone this direction or that direction. But at the end of the day, like I have to be able to sit with where we are. I have to be able to look at that 
especially in the low point. Mm-hmm. And so I can't under any circumstance be in that low moment and feeling like I did something because someone else thought I should do wow. it. I've got, I've got to always have like conviction. Right. And so, you know, that's taken a lot. There are people that felt like tastemakers should only be for influencers and that's it. Mm. You know, it felt like that should be what we do. And I didn't feel like that's what we should do. And so, you know, it's just, um, you've got to really have conviction. Mm-hmm. You know, entrepreneurship is not for the faint at heart. It's not because it's cute or cool. That stuff will be dope when, like, your friend that works at Essence, you know, does a write-up and now everyone thinks you got the juice. Right. But on those dark days, when you're, like, <laughs> looking at your kid who's like, why can't you stay in one place? Like, th- that's not going to get you through those those things mm-hmm. at all. So how does he feel about, you know, trout, you know, you're talking about your son. How did this, all this affect your son in any way? You know, I mean, it has not been uh, smooth. Mm-hmm. I think when I was, you know, living in Brooklyn and in the like two parent household situation, it was a lot easier for him because the impact of my travel wasn't felt. But like mm-hmm. now when I travel, he's older. So my absence is felt more. We're not in the same environment. And he's also like, I mean, to him, I got divorced, mm. you know, so it went from, so like, it's, it's not even just the travel. It's like this separation in his life. You know, he moved away from all his friends. And so, you know, that part is rough. But then at the same time, my son is incredibly proud. I mean, mm. we did a Black History Month presentation at his school that was like the wokest thing they ever saw. I mean, we were talking about Yoruba sculpture and the first African-American millionaires. And, you know, so, you know, he talks about my business to anyone who will listen. Wow. He's so proud of you know, his he's moms. Appo- <laughs> yeah. He's appointed himself the head of merchandise, he's, <laughs> you know, come up with a strategy for sales growth and merchandise. And he's 10. Wow. So I, I think I take it as one of those like short term sacrifice and long term gain. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that I've also learned from being in Africa all the time. Mm-hmm. And the U S we're super like, hands-on with their kids, always worry about their feelings. And in Africa, you know, in Nigeria, kids are off at boarding school by nine. Wow. Like they're out of the house. Figuring things out on their own. Yeah, they might be in boarding school locally or in London or whatever. But then that's why when you look at these super successful people in Hollywood and business, in America, a lot of them, I mean, Nigerians are the most well-off immigrant population in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, I look at child rearing as a critical component of that. Right. You know, so with my son, you know, I think I've learned a lot from like the African parents that I know or my friends, you know, that are in Nigeria or Ghana or even in South Africa. You know, this idea of parenting that we have in the States is counterproductive to right. creating humans that can sort. And I think, you know, Caribbean, uh, Caribbean uh, people have sort of similar elements of that, even if it's not as global as sort of some of the African folks that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like sweeping generalization. So whoever's listening that wants to make, you know, a diatribe, please feel free. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't know. That's just sort of how I look at it. Like there are going to be things that he's not going to love. He's going to have some battles that some kids have, but he's also going to have, you know, some experiences that, some people don't get their whole lifetime. 
Right. Well, Sheree, thank you. I, I was only trying to talk to you for an hour, but your story was so great. We went up to like an hour and 20 minutes. So thank you so much for sharing this, this your amazing journey with us. And is there any last things you want to let our audience know in terms of? No, I think I've talked them to death enough. <laughs> uh, so it's tastemakersafrica.com to find. Tastemakersafrica.com. Okay. Well, thank you once again. And I appreciate you coming on here, sharing your story. And I think that's about it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. All right, girl. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you all for tuning into Reverse Ambition Podcast. It is really a pleasure sharing these amazing journeys with you. It may take some time for you to find your purpose and realize your dreams or for your purpose and dreams to find you. When it happens, don't be afraid to pursue them. Be more afraid if you don't. Trust God, trust your journey, and most important, trust yourself and it will all work out. Until next time, I am Kelsa Cooper, The Social Broker. Thanks again for listening.